0: Well, good morning, let's get to it, let's get to it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we will be this morning, it's where we were last week, looking at verses 1 through 8, this is part 2, so we started this sermon last week. I don't see any, there's a little one, okay, so yeah, just in case, uh, this sermon does contain uh, the word that begins with S and ends with X, and we are discussing things of that nature, so just uh, a heads up, more mature nature this morning, I had given you a warning last week, just in case you had little ones in here and you didn't want them to be exposed to such content, I wanted to make you aware of that, so. We are picking back up where we left off, and I'm certainly, I went way too long last week, and probably the same thing will happen this week, and I can't cover what we covered last week, so if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I would encourage you to pick it up online, but we'll cover the bulk of the section this morning, actually. We really only just handled the first three verses and the general topic uh, last week, but one of the things I said is what is abnormal uh, to God or unacceptable to Him is is now more widely accepted as normal in our culture, unfortunately. And I would, uh, I would encourage you to, to go online, not right now, but uh, later, and uh, Google the Hayes Code, H-A-Y-S, H-A-Y-S Code. I just found it interesting to see just how far we've come, just in a fairly short period of time, culturally speaking, uh, again, without passing any judgment on these things, just the facts. Um, but you could look into it. It's interesting. The Hayes Code was uh, the informal name given to the Motion Picture Production Code that was adopted in 1930 and began to take effect in 1934. And it was basically a, a code that would be applied to the motion pictures concerning ethics or what was allowed and, and what was not allowed. All right? And that code... Uh, went on until about the 60s. Yeah. And they adopted the new standard of uh, rating things like PG or R or, or, or what have you. The code also impacted television, you know, in the 50s. Uh, the, that, and you see that, but you see a, a change from the 50s to the 60s and then on into the 70s when the code kind of went away. And just to give you some examples of the code... Um, Crime and, according to the Hayes Code, so this was in movies, just think of the movies now and think of television now and think of how radically different it is in about 60 or 70 years, it's changed. Crime and immorality could never be portrayed in a positive light, according to the Hayes Code, not in a positive light. And the immorality uh, that they would be talking about would generally be a Christian ethic, a Christian ethic. Uh, nudity and or overt portrayals and references to sexual behavior could not be shown. Pretty different, yeah? Pretty different. In fact, it it was how it impacted uh, television, for an example. If you remember the show I Love Lucy, you'll remember there was two beds in the bedroom. And and beyond that, there was a dresser in between the beds because... (laughs) They wanted to give no appearance, even though that's a married couple. But they didn't want you even thinking about uh, such things. I think they—I think I was reading that the first occurrence of a, a couple in the same bed was bewitched, and that was, I think, in the 70s, because at that point the haze could kind of passed away. So pretty. Pretty, you know, basic stuff compared to now. Here's another uh, thing according to the Hayes Code. Religion could never be depicted in a mocking manner. Uh, The sanctity of marriage had to be upheld. And I like this one. Blasphemy, including using the name of God as an explicative or exclamation, was not allowed. Using the word God was allowed, but only if used in a reverent tone or meaning. In addition, profanity of any kind was prohibited of any kind. Think about the stuff on television now and, and the movies. So we've come a long way, baby. We've come a long way. And obviously those things were influenced by where we came from, which was a, a Christian Judeo ethic, right? But... We live in a post-Christian culture at this point, and people are quickly and have been for some time turning away from um, those values, those values. And the culture will likely get worse. It will likely get worse. But uh, we, as believers, must not lose our way as we live in the midst of it, nor should we, I would say, wall ourselves off in some Christian community. That's not what God's called us to do, you know, separate ourselves in the sense that we no longer interact with the world around us. If we don't interact with the world around us, then how will they ever hear the truth of the gospel? How will will it ever change in any way? You know, Paul, as we were looking at this letter, Paul didn't tell the Thessalonians, move away, you know, the Christians in Thessalonica, move away, man, get out of there, it's terrible. He didn't tell them that. But he did tell them they must live for the Lord even in the midst of all that junk. They must continue down the path of righteousness, especially when it comes to sexual behavior. So, God's will for us, as we looked at last week, uh, uh, for his children, for those who follow Jesus Christ, his will for us is, if you remember what? What are we told in this text that we're about to read? What is God's will for us, huh? Our sanctification, which, as we see in this text, includes and requires That we abstain, that means completely have nothing to do with, not moderation, abstain from sexual immorality. And sexual immorality, as I defined it last week, as someone else had defined it, uh, is any and every form of sexual practice that lies outside the circle of God's revealed will. Okay? That covers it. So... Do your goals for your life include and conform to God's goal for your life? Some, a question for you to consider. Do they conform to, do they include and conform to God's goal for your life? And if they don't, you've got a problem. His will for your life is your sanctification, and that includes that you abstain from anything that is outside of God's will concerning sexual behavior. Now, the Christians in Thessalonica, they were doing well. We talked about this last week. We can see that from the text. They were doing well in following the Lord. They were new believers. But they were surrounded. Their culture was perverted sexually, and they were surrounded by sexual perversion. And until recently, until their conversion, they were part of that perversion. So until their conversion, they were part of that perversion. You know what I'm saying? They... they um, participated in their culture. They were a part of it. And so Paul uh, writes to them, likely because Timothy has now reported back about how his uh, young believers in Thessalonica are doing, and I don't think we need to assume that they were actually sinning now in this regard, but they may have been struggling. But either way, struggling or not, this is certainly something that would have been very important for them to be instructed in and exhorted in, because it was ever-present in their face. And, as I said, until just recently, they were, in fact, participating in such things, practicing these things. These were their previous habits. And so there's some relatability for us, because our culture, although not strictly pagan, is not uh, Christian. Certainly not Christian, and is quickly kind of circling on the way down the drain. Our culture is not as bad as first-century culture, I can tell you that, but uh, maybe uh, after a few more years, who knows? I don't know. So we must toe the line. We are to be pure. Our lives are to be free of sexual perversion. And I said perversion, that's why I titled it Purity in the Midst of Perversion or While Surrounded by Perversion. I said perversion because... When uh, we use the word perversion, we often think of, I don't know, I think Christians think of their mind maybe goes strictly right to homosexuality. But perversion would include fornication. Adultery. It includes those things because the definition of perversion is the alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. And when God gave the two first human beings, Adam and Eve, he created them, and and he's the one who created sex and gave them the gift of sex, because it is a gift. His intention was never fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and we can go on and on with all the perversions that now flow out of that because of sin. So let's read the text And we'll pick up right where we left off in verse 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. All right, here we go. You ready? You sure? Okay. We are picking up in verse 4. Paul now will begin to emphasize and expand upon the prohibition in verse 3, that is to abstain from sexual immorality. So he's going to expand upon that. So again, reading verse from verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, as he expands now, that each one of you know how to or learn to, as the NIV translates it, control his own body in holiness and honor. The, um, a more original reading or closer to the original language would be know how to possess his own vessel. Know how to possess his own vessel. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I'm satisfied with the ESV translation, know how to control your own body. I think that's an Uh, appropriate uh, translation, but it is know how to possess his own vessel. That is the words that Paul uses. Possess then has uh, the nuance of have control over, so the translators of the ESV choose to use the word control, and I think it's appropriate to do that. And vessel was a Greek word that was used literally to describe um, various household tools or instruments, such as like a jar or a dish or a container. But Paul, as he has in other places in the scriptures, is using the term here figuratively to refer to the human body. I believe that is the best way to understand the text, and that's how the ESV understands it, and that's why they just put the word body there. Uh, But it is vessel. And I like that, I I like that, I think it's important though that we know it is vessel because... it's not just your body, but then it's the idea is the, the body is the vessel, the instrument of the soul. Beyond that, it is, the, uh, it is the container, if you will, of the Holy Spirit that now resides in you that Paul will uh, pick up at the end of this section. So just being reflecting on that, your vessel, that thing that carries around your soul, uh, contains your soul, and now for you, believer, the Holy Spirit, that vessel, that body, you are to control, all right? Have control over, mastery over. So that's all I'll say about that. But know how to, the idea is have knowledge of how to do an activity, and control is, as I said, mastery over, mastery over. So abstaining then from sexual immorality as we are commanded to do, by the Apostle Paul, and as, his representative, as a representative of Jesus Christ and God, by God himself, uh, requires then that we know how to exercise control over our body, or more specifically, the desires here in this context, the desires of our flesh, or more specifically, our body's sexual cravings or appetites. In other words, the Christian in light of God's revealed will for their life, must not let the body control them or their actions or boss them around in this matter, but rather they must learn to or know how to control or be the master of their own body. They need to uh, remember the words of that, little child who says to their babysitter, when the babysitter asks them to do something they don't want to do, you're not the boss of me. We need to remember that's a good line, not for them, but for us, in speaking to our own bodies. You are not the boss of me. No longer. You do not own me. You don't have the right to control me. One writer says this, As in today's culture, as in today's culture, the culture of Paul's day operated largely according to physical appetites and impulsive, superficial emotions. In other words, wherever the body led them, that's where they went. Whatever it desired, they gave it its desires. The words of the slogan, If it feels right, do it, Have you heard that slogan? As if that makes it right. If it feels right, do it, are of a contemporary origin, but the philosophy they express is not. Is not. If God says it's right, then we may engage. But if he says it's not right, then we must not engage, regardless of what our body may be saying or telling us, or what our heart may be feeling. We must be guided by God, as I said last week, and not our corrupt hearts and emotions that come and go and are not pure often, or even the natural appetites of the body in this regard. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 6.13, There's a statement there about food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. And there also, Paul is rebuking and addressing the matter of sexual immorality. And he he says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And specifically, he's talking about sexual immorality there as well. He says, "It's it's not given to you for the purpose of sexual immorality, but you, Christian, Set apart by God, that body is now to be used for the Lord, for His purposes, according to His instruction and guidance. Now, that phrase, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, one pastor said this, I found it interesting. That statement regarding food and the stomach was likely a proverbial saying, something that was said by the people of that time, commonly said and was known was a proverbial saying that called all physical gratification natural and normal. Hey, listen, food is for the stomach, stomach's for the food, if my stomach wants food. They, they were meant for each other. You know, so. And viewed sex like eating, as purely biological. Apparently, some of the Corinthians use that analogy to justify their sexual immorality. Hey, my body wants it. And it's for me, and it's eh, just biological, man. He goes on to say, but sexual sin is not a servant. It is a powerful master. Therefore, the apostle warned the Corinthians, as he had the Thessalonians, that believers must not allow that sin to control them. All Christians must know the importance of disciplining their bodies so they will honor God. Interesting enough, uh, last week I had a couple people send me articles that they encountered uh, during the same period of time in in light of the sermon. Uh, They went together. Someone sent me an article from a magazine called Brio Magazine. It's uh, Focus on the Family puts it out. I don't read it because it's for teen girls, so I didn't even know it existed. Um, This is the current issue, interestingly enough. You know, I don't, you know, we're just, for those of you who are new, we just make our way through a book, so I'm not preaching topically, it's not because all of a sudden I wanted to talk about sexual morality. I mean, it's not like a really fun thing to be talking about, but we're talking about it because here it is in the text that we're moving through, section by section in 1 Thessalonians. So, we're going to talk about it. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, on, the, on the article, on the, on the current article, there's a section that says, Friends with Benefits, which I talked to you about last week as part of our... Uh, perverted culture, friends with benefits, and then it says, or not. So the suggestion is, maybe there, maybe there aren't benefits, maybe it's something else, and it is certainly something else. But it goes on to say this in the article, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s sought to define sex under the premise that the physical senses alone drive our behavior. If it feels good, do it. Goes on to say. By the way, I didn't. I was born in '73. So, how many of you like were in your teens in the '60s? Are you embarrassed to say? But going on, just go ahead. I want to see how many of you were in your teens during the '60s. Man, you won't raise your hand. All right, four of you. You guys are not telling the truth, and you're supposed to speak the truth. I know there's more of you than that. <laughs> Coming of age in the '60s. Well, either way, you were exposed to it. I mean, the '60s. You just. You know, I remember I told you about the Hays Code and it kind of. You know, the sexual revolution of the 60s, a lot of destruction from, that has come of that. Free love, just ridiculousness. Anyway, if it feels good, do it. The writer says, I doubt the pioneers of the movement could have imagined just how far it would go. Unfortunately, we've driven those sexual revolution Volkswagen hippie vans into entirely new territory. We call it Friends with Benefits. The idea of casual sex, it's fine, and if you want to do it, what's the big deal? Just do it. Feels right, feels good, do it. And that's exactly what the culture was like in first century Rome. But uh, Paul uses this uh, other phrase. He says that we are to uh, know how to control... The Christian is to know how to control his own body. So the, the uh, obligation is put on him, the responsibility is put on him. I'm not trying to control someone else's body. I've got to know how to control my own body. And I'm to do it in holiness and honor. In holiness and honor. Uh, NIV translates it this way, control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. That's, that's not exactly, that's not what the text says. It says it's closed, but it's in holiness and honor. I think the idea is, like, for the, in the sphere of, in the realm of, in the recognition of, that you are to be using your body for the purposes of holiness and honor. I think that's the right way to understand it. In other words, as I look to control my own body, I must continue to remember I'm doing this because... This body is now to be used in a holy way and a way that is honorable because I have been set apart by God because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I've been set apart for these very things. Not to use my body in a sinful way or a dishonorable way any longer. I must not do that. That may have been my past behavior. That can no longer be my behavior going forward. It must not be. And if it is, and if it does... Turn out that way, then of course I must repent immediately and turn away from that and turn back to this proper behavior. One writer says it this way, the body must be set apart for the service of God. He's commenting on that idea in holiness and honor. Such a sanctifying use of the body then excludes sexual and other forms of impurity. The use of the body in immoral ways dishonors and degrades the body. And you can look it up later, Romans one twenty four, where that idea uh, is talked about. Dishonoring the body and sexual morality. To use the body as a sacred instrument devoted to the service of the Lord is to give it true honor. So in holiness, in holiness and honor, we are to control our bodies. In holiness and honor, we are to control our own bodies. Know how to do that. Learn how to do that. Now, this reminds me, this language, remember this is the Apostle Paul writing this letter, it reminds me of this language and what he said in Romans, and we've worked through that book, and I would encourage you, if you weren't here, you can go back online and listen to these messages, but just reading the text to you, you'll see the similarities and the same type of message being sent by Paul in Romans 6, 11. he says, so you the Christians in Rome, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he's made this long argument that, Sin is no longer our master. When we died with Christ, or when we put our faith in him, we died with him on the cross. Sin and the power of sin has been broken in our lives. It no longer rules over us. We may allow it to rule over us, but it is no longer our king. Its power has been broken. Lord Jesus is our king. We now are to walk according to him. We are now no longer slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. But we have to believe those things, remind ourselves of those things, Hold on to those things. And, and so when sin comes a calling, we say, hey, there's no room for you here anymore. You don't own me. You used to own me, but no longer go away. So if the body cries out for you to do something that you know you're not supposed to do, you are to tell it, listen, you have no business here. Get on out. Now, sin doesn't stop, does it? It's continually calling and crying out, but we are to continue then to say no, right? So he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And not only are we to tell sin no, but it's not like, okay, I've told sin, no, I'm done. No, no, I tell sin, no, and I walk over here and I say, so what does my master have to say about how I'm to behave and conduct myself? My new master, Jesus Christ the Lord. And then I began to give myself to him. I used to give myself to sin. Sin owned me. I had no choice in the matter, really, because I was dead in my sins and trespasses, blinded right, in darkness, but now I've been set free, brought into the light, regenerated, given a new heart, a Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, I should say, and I am been put under the dominion of the King, my Lord Jesus Christ, and now he has instructions for me, and he's speaking to me, and I am to obey in those things. I'm a slave of righteousness. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must reckon that to be true continually, so on, so forth, continually, Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it reign anymore. Don't let it have its way with you. Don't let it call the shots. It's similar language. You need to know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Listen, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Interesting, translated passions here. It's the same word translated lust in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. We read it earlier. We'll get to it in a moment. Same word. 13. Do not present your members. We talked about this, but members here refers to the parts of your body. Okay? Go back and listen to the, it's parts of your body. It's all the parts of your body. So whether it be your mind, your heart, your vocal cords, your tongue, your hands, your genitals. Okay? Just getting Keeping it real. Don't let the parts of your body, let me go back here, do not present your members to sin or parts of your body as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't let them be used as an instrument for unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, hello, that's what's occurred, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Use your body... serve, and honor God. He goes on in verse 19, just as you once presented your members, the parts of your body, as slaves to impurity. By the way, impurity there, same word used in 1 Thess 4, 7. We're going to look at impurity. Just as you used to do that, slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, more sin, More rebellion against God, so now present your members, the parts of your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And guess what God's will for us is? Right? Our sanctification, which I said. One way to define that is it's the process, at least here as he's talking about, the process of being made holy or becoming more and more in character and conduct that which God desires. Or a shorthand way of saying it is to become more like Jesus Christ because that's what God desires for us, that we would become like his beloved son, perfect and righteous son. You know, Jesus walked around during that period of time too in the first century Right? And he was there in that pagan society, right? But he did not entertain sin. You go, oh, it's Jesus, you know? Yeah, he was sinless. He did not have a sin nature, but he still had to be exposed to all that junk. And that's what God would have for us, that even living in the midst of all that junk, we would walk, continue to walk in righteousness, just as our Lord did. So, One writer just puts it this way. Listen, engaging in sexual immorality is a misuse of the believer's body, which is sanctified to the service of God. Can you just remember that? It's a mis... If you engage in sexual immorality, just know this, it is, as a Christian, it is a misuse of your body. You're misusing it. So let let me try to drive that home a little more. Let me illustrate that. That would be... It's not exactly. It's an illustration, so... It would be like... Me taking one of my wife's most beautiful and expensive dresses. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, One that, because I'll get in trouble. One that she has set aside for a special occasion, okay? And using it to wipe up my child's vomit. Huh? Which she, it's similar And taking this body that God has redeemed, body and soul he has redeemed me, and using it for sexual immorality. It's vile. It's disgusting. It would be an affront to her. She would be, I couldn't even imagine what would the look on her face, but she would give me that look that you women give. (laughs) Powerful, powerful look. Um, You know, death death, and I, you know, you, you should expect that, like, what were you thinking, right, what were you thinking, it would be like taking our best dishes, I don't know if people do this anymore, it used to be a big deal, I remember my parents used to have, I don't, I don't, maybe you do, but, you know, you'd have, like, your china, I don't know, think we've gotten away from that, your, your china set, like, or your best set of dishes, and they'd be put up in a, even on display, in a, uh, whatever you call that thing, Hutch, thank you. Huh? Okay, armor, hutch, whatever. Whatever you like, use it. All right. A thing, a wooden box that displays pretty things, and uh, you would see it. you be like, wow, what's that? No, we don't touch that. No, 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 that's not for the family. You know, we're just having dinner. That remains there for special occasions, you know, you know, whatever that means, I guess, you know, when special people come over. but Or, you know, when you have a big family gathering, whatever. So it would be like, it would be like me going, oh, Okay, all right, so I take a bowl out, honey, the dog dumped again right here. I have to, Don't worry, no, no, don't go get the pooper scooper. I got this useful tool right here. I'm just going to take it, it looks like it'll do the job, and I pick it up. Can you imagine the look? I mean, if that was important to you, the dishes were important to you. I mean, because my wife, listen, so she would not, I'd have to, honey, I'm sorry. She would throw, she'd make me throw it away. I could not ever even, she would not be okay, even if I cleaned it for 10 hours. That's how she is. If the dish... It's like, no, it's contaminated. We've had to throw stuff away. I'm like, that dish is still good. I'm not saying I've used it as a pooper scooper. I'm just saying. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm like, babe, it's still good. But it's like that. This vial. Like, are you kidding me? That dish is never meant for that. Use a pickup dog poop? So, Christian, you must know how to control your body, your own body, in holiness and honor because you've been set apart by God. It's not, just bo- it's not just soul, guys. God has saved us, body and soul. This, the body's falling away, but, the, and he will, but he's going to restore the body to perfection. It's body and soul salvation. It's the whole thing. And for the meantime, this body is the instrument that carries around our soul and is the house of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. It is to be holy, set apart unto God, which means we must abstain from all that God calls sin. And so we must abstain from sexual immorality. One writer says in several of his other letters, the Apostle Paul made it crystal clear that in order to control their bodies, believers must rely on the Holy Spirit. I think that's right. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Apostle Paul said that in the letter to the Galatians. The key to walking in the Spirit is, of course, to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. And the key to being filled with the Spirit is that the believer lets God's Word dwell within them. Colossians 3. So we must sincerely read, study, and apply Scripture so that it saturates our lives and allows us to yield complete control to the Holy Spirit. And this is why we continue to come back and say, Are you serious? Is that what you're going to tell me again? The Word of God? Study the Word, meditate on the Word, be in the Word, hear the Word. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's the source of our power, our strength, our guidance. It trains us in righteousness. It corrects us. It rebukes us. It leads us into the way that God would have for us. It is there that God has revealed his will for us in his word. You get away from the word, things get weird. Huh? Yeah. I'm speaking personally, too. Get away from the word, things start to get weird. We stay in the word. We're committed to the word. We want to drown yourself in the word. You're already drowning in the world. And that's, you know, it's hard to avoid. I mean, you're just in it. You're you're swimming in it, baby. So I need regular doses, heavy doses, injections. What's it called when they hook you up? Like, yeah, I need that. I need a regular IV of the word of God. through, let's go, let's move on. First, Thess 4, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Watch this. Here's a contrast. Verse 5. Not in the passion of lust. So, also translated, not in lustful passion. Also translated, or passionate lust. Okay? It's all saying the same thing. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Remember, he's writing primarily to Gentiles, but these Gentiles, in Thessalonica, but these Gentiles know God. They know God. They know him now. The Gentiles around them, they didn't before. They knew gods, little g. They were religious. They worshipped false gods, but now they have come to know the one and true and only living God, the righteous one, the holy one. What a contrast, right? In holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. In the passion of lust. The word passion here, we use the word passion in various ways. And so don't, you want to be careful not to apply how we might, we might say, hey, that person is so passionate about that. It's not a, that's not exactly that's not how Paul's using it here. Like, you know, they're passionate when they speak or, you know, they're really excited about that. That's not that's not how Paul would use it. The and, and we, you know, that's how we use that English word. But remember, there's a Greek word underlying this English word that is translated in our English text. But the, the Greek word just means inordinate affection. What does that mean? What is inordinate? What is that? Excessive, uh, unregulated, not controlled, exceeding reasonable limits. That is the definition of this Greek word. So the idea then, in using this word, is uh, something that's unrestrained, uncontrolled, ungoverned affections. What kind of affections? Well, he uses the word lust, so passion of lust. Now, the word lust, or the Greek word translated lust here, or in this version, in most versions, lust speaks of that, the Greek word, simply active desires, cravings, longings, okay? And you don't know, you don't know in just the use of the word by itself, what specific desires, cravings, or longings that the word might be talking about. It can speak of good desires. We know that because Paul used it uh, a little bit earlier in First Thess 2.17. You can let your eyes roll back up there, but that's where he said, we endeavored the more eagerly, it's not in my slides, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire, that word desire there, a desire to see you face to face. In other words, remember, we wanted to come and see you. We long to see you. And um, it's the same Greek word. So that was a good desire. But bottom line, you use the context, you know, where, what's going on around that word, to figure out what kind of desire that Paul or the writer, the New Testament writer, is speaking of. And so here, clearly, the context is sexual immorality. So it's a sexual desire. So, putting the words together then, Paul is basically referring to, you know, on one level, here's, here's what you're called to, control your body and its cravings and its longings in holiness and honor, and don't be like this, not in, don't, don't. Put your body into this category in the passion of lust. Don't treat it that way in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So for them, it's just the opposite. It's unrestrained, unbridled sexual desires or longings. In other words, they put no limit on their sexual behavior or cravings or desires. They did. It's just what I said earlier. They did whatever their body desired them to do. If it felt good, they did it. They were, so Paul is saying, listen, do not be basically overwhelmed and carried away by the body's sexual desires or urges, which, is, which, by the way, is the habit of the Gentiles who do not know God. So you need to think about that. That's a distinction as well. Here's what people look like who do not know God, right? They give themselves to these things. They, there's no limits. They are not, they're not exercising self-control in this matter because... They're just doing whatever their body says they should do. They are controlled by, dominated by their urges and impulses. That is not to be the case with you, Christian. That's, that is the reality, sadly, for those who do not know God. And if they do not know God, they have not been set free from their sin or its enslavement or its mastery over them. They have not been made a new creation in Christ. Their heart is still given to these things. Over here, Christian... You know God, okay? So that means you, you know him, you have been enlightened, you have been transformed, and you now need to live in light of that reality and what you know. And the God you know, unlike these guys over here, and specifically when he's talking about these Gentiles, they knew gods, but these gods, as I told you last week, actually made sexual immorality an act of worship. Sending out their priestesses, you know, into the streets and, and having, engaging with them so that you could, according to them, get closer to the divine or to your pagan God through that interaction. Insanity. Because that's what happens to people that are trapped in darkness. They're in a dark room. They're just banging around on the wall and falling down. They don't know where to go. It ruins them. But over here, you've been enlightened, and now you know the true and living God, and this God is indeed holy and righteous and is creator of all and ruler of all, which means he gets to make all the rules, right? And he made you, and you are to live for him. And he has, in fact, redeemed you, gave his son to purchase you, body and soul. Purchase your salvation, your redemption. He owns you. You are not your own. And therefore, you are to live in light of his instruction. You used to be mastered by sin. The Lord is now your master. So, Paul's just making all these points. Keep on, we'll keep on. This is, we're almost, uh, wow, okay. All right, for this is the will of God, back to the passage, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, back to uh, verses three through six. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, Not in the passion of lust. Just give themselves to their sexual urges. Uncontrolled, unbridled, libido. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then he says this, he adds this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. That's interesting. So, a few things here. I understand brother here to refer to a fellow Christian, uh, male or female, and not to mankind in general. But, certainly it doesn't exclude mankind in general. Okay? So, and I say that because in the context, he continues to use brothers, he'll do it in verse 10 of chapter 4, it's clear he's using brothers to speak of Christian, uh, the Christian community, brothers and sisters in Christ. So, I don't, see him using it differently here, like all of a sudden, now he's talking about the brotherhood of mankind. Um, But some people struggle with that, because what are you saying? Are you saying Paul's saying, you know, uh, just worry about your brothers and sisters in Christ in this regard? No, no. One writer says, to accept the term brother here in its usual restricted sense, speaking about the body of Christ, does not imply that Paul is accepting a double standard, as though it were allowable to wrong a non-Christian. The standard demanded in the Christian circle would also apply to the wider circle. Paul is simply thinking of the immediate circle in which Christians stood without thereby intending to exclude the wider circle. So remember who he's addressing. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking right to them, and I think that's the idea. So that's how I understand it. But, of course, it does not exclude, then, those outside of the body as well. They're not to wrong them in this regard either. A Christian should not do that. So they are not to transgress and wrong their brother in this matter. We're going to break it down real quick. Transgress, what does that mean? To overreach, to go beyond, to sin against, to violate the rights of, is all of that would be in that word. And then wrong. Now this is interesting. Wrong here is translated defraud, which is probably... uh, a better translation. It's translated to defraud in, the, for instance, the New American Standard Bible. Defraud. A synonym of fraud would be cheat. Okay? But the word actually means take advantage of. And it includes the idea of being, of covetousness or greed. So the idea is one who is greedy, who then looks to take advantage of, they want what they want, and they look to take advantage of or get the better of someone else. Use them for their own purposes. That's the word. So another translation puts this section like this. In this matter, no one should violate the rights of his brother and take advantage of him. That's a good translation of the passage. That's how I would understand it. So in what matter? In this matter, in what matter? What have we been talking about? Well, the matter under consideration is sex. So in the matter of sex, no one should violate the rights of his brother or take advantage of him. Now, what was Paul thinking about specifically? I don't know. I don't know specifically. Generally, it's thought that he might be talking about the sin of adultery, which obviously would be a violation of the rights of another. Okay? But... As commentators point out, it's not necessary to restrict the evil that Paul is talking about, the defrauding, the transgressing, the violation of one's rights. You don't have to restrict the evil to adultery. In fact, one writer puts it this way, whenever believers seek to satisfy their physical desires and gain sexual pleasure at the expense of another believer or anybody outside as well, they have violated this command. Trying to get a little more detail to it, one person says, to have sexual relations with another man's wife or another woman's husband is to transgress against the innocent spouse and defraud him or her. To violate an unmarried woman is to hurt her and to defraud her future husband of her virginity. And I would say vice versa. He goes on to point out implicit in the word defraud, as I said to you, it's related to the word greed is that sexual sin is inherently selfish. You're taking advantage of the other person for your own pleasure or benefit. It's friends with benefits. That's what's going on. I'll use you to gain something, some pleasure. And I don't really care what it does or doesn't do to you. You may rationalize it by saying that it was by mutual agreement and for mutual pleasure, But the author says, but you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. In the remaining verses now, we'll come back to that in a second. In the remaining verses, Paul now labors really just to reinforce the command that they are to abstain from sexual immorality by giving them motivation, if you will, uh, for that command. And so that's what we'll see here. And we'll go quick. I know we're over. 1 Thess 4:6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, okay, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things or concerning all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The NIV translates it just like this: "The Lord will punish men for all such sins." Who is he writing to? Christians. And in his instruction to those Christians, he warned them that the Lord. an avenger in all these things to the Christians, right? Because there is the danger that they would not obey, that they would fail. And so he warns them solemnly, seriously, strongly, don't do it. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. The Lord is not okay with this. So, you know, again, and, and, he, and he says he's an avenger, so he, he doesn't say, hey, listen, it just hurt. It hurts the Lord. You don't want to do that. It hurts him. Okay, that should be a motivation. We don't want to hurt the Lord, right? But he, it's, for, it's more than that. He's an avenger in these things. Not only does it hurt him, it does, and that should hurt you, but he will avenge. He will inflict harm in return for a wrong done to another person or a wrong done to him. And in this matter, it would be a wrong done to him as well, to the Lord, to use your body, which 1 Corinthians 6 says is for the Lord because it belongs to him because he purchased you by his own blood, to use that very body for these purposes, committing sexual immorality and then in doing so, wronging, defrauding, transgressing, hurting, whether you think you are or not, another individual by this act. And I think avenge is the right word instead of punish because the NIV uses punish because he just got through saying talking about that in doing so you will wrong another and so avenge is the appropriate word. It's an infliction of punishment for a wrong for a wrong carried out on someone else. You know, I was just thinking about why, why does Paul need to warn them of that? Well, obviously, because of the de- he, he cares about them. He doesn't want them to experience that discipline, that punishment. But he has to tell them that because sex outside of marriage was not thought to be wrong by their pagan culture. He has to continue to... That's what, so remember, I've warned you this of this before. I've told you this. When did he do that? Well, when he came about six months earlier, and he preached the gospel, and they got saved. Think about that. Part of this initial instruction you know, was telling them, now listen, a part of your Christian life now means you need to abstain from these practices. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, the Lord is an avenger in these things. Don't do it. Don't violate this command. He's serious about this. He will discipline you. And I think, you know, obviously they got to see that because for all this time, you know, if I said, hey, if you steal or murder, the Lord is an avenger in these things. You'd be like, yeah, of course he is, right? Right? But for, even for them, they would have understood that. Stealing and murdering was wrong. But for them, this was a new sexual ethic. So they need to know, no, the Lord is not only not okay with this behavior, he will go after it just as if someone stole from another or murdered from another or murdered another. I think maybe another reason that he needs to say that the Lord is an avenger in these things is uh, sexual sin or these kind of activities are often kept in secret or done in secret, at least people think. So you might think, Christian, that you can continue in this pattern and get away with it because if the other spouse doesn't know, or the other boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't know, or the family doesn't know that you're violating this other person. In this way, because that's what it is, and sinning against them and yourself and God, you may think you'll get away with it, but the Lord is the one. You may get away with it concerning humanity, but you won't, because the Lord is an avenger in these things, and he knows all and sees all. So it's a warning. It's a warning. Don't do it, right? Because Paul loves them. Don't do it. Don't get your stuff caught up in this stuff, because it will not go well for you. And I I don't have time, but write down Hebrews 12. You guys probably know the passage. I would assume most of you do, 6 through 11, where it says the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises or punishes every son whom he receives. He disciplines them. This discipline is for their good, ultimately, that they might be trained in righteousness and become holy. But you shouldn't be looking for this discipline. You should be trying to avoid it. So I'm, I am glad that the Lord does it. So I am thankful, I am thankful that God does it. Because you, you know, just like in a family, when you see children that are not disciplined at all, it's crazy, it's chaotic, it's bad for the family, it's bad for those children. It's no different with the church and the people of God. If God were not to discipline us, and bring corrective measures to our lives, oh my goodness, we'd be a wreck. So I'm thankful for discipline. But discipline is painful, as Hebrew says. It can hurt bad. So God has his ways. Thank God he does it. But you should not be looking for it. You should be looking to avoid it. Okay? So Paul loves them. He cares about them. He doesn't want to see them have that kind of pain. So he warns them. And then, 1 Thess 4:7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The 4 there indicates that the warning that Christ will judge is justified in view of what he has already done, right? He, is, he has called us into holiness. He's not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So he will discipline us to that, with that goal in mind. When he sees us out of line or stepping out of line in this way, and especially in the area of sexual immorality where we're sinning against the very vessel that contains the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that resides within us and harming others in what we're doing, defrauding them and hurting them. Maybe we don't see it because we say, ah, it's consensual. You are doing harm to them. That's not God's design. That's not what he would have you to do. We are, called for impure. We are not called to impurity but in holiness. So it's just reinforcing that. So obviously, then, immorality must be avoided. Finally, uh, in Titus, well, you write this down because we're out of time. Titus 2, 11 through 14, you can see that God has saved us and he gave himself, the Lord Jesus, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So our salvation, as we've said many times, is not just about avoiding hell. It includes that. That's the penalty of sin. But it's also... Becoming more, our salvation includes the idea that we become more and more like Christ, that the power of sin now has been broken in our life, and that we begin to walk unto the Lord and that we would honor him with our lives. That's what he's called us into. That's what he saved us for, that we might be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, which is a beautiful, holy, righteous image. And so anything that is not of that image or would mar that image should not be, we need to rid ourselves of in our lives. Avoid. Avoid. Finally, first Thess four eight, he says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Obviously, um, I think it's pretty clear. The one who regards this, uh, or disregards the instruction to abstain from sexual morality, he's not rejecting man's will; he's rejecting God's. That elevates the seriousness of this matter. So it's not just you know some guy up here going, "This is how I think you should live." You know, so what? Who are you? Who are you, dude? This is God saying, this is how you must live. That changes the whole scenario. So It doesn't matter what men say or don't say or endorse or don't endorse. This is God himself who gives you this instruction, the Almighty One. And then finally he says, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And this is interesting because you can't see it in the English translation, but it's there in the, in the Greek. It literally reads like this, who gives the Spirit of him the Holy One to you. Who gives the Spirit of him the Holy One to you. And so what's being emphasized is the holiness of the Spirit, as one writer says, who is at work in the lives of God's people. And the work of a Holy Spirit must be evident in the sanctified living of the church. This is the will of God for His people. To live immorally is to give evidence of the Spirit's absence. And I'll close with this. The obligation to live holy lives arises out of their reception of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies and makes holy. For them to go on living in impurity is a direct insult to the divine giver and a sin against the Holy Spirit who is the power unto holiness. And the Spirit dwells inside of them. He supplies not only the desire, but also the ability to live a life of purity. His indwelling puts an end to the pagan plea that man has no power to resist impure desires. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and just pray that it would do its work, continue to do its work in us and may we look to you and look to it. And Father... And may we repent if we have sinned or are sinning in this area even now. Father, may we not put it off any longer. May we not make excuses. May your Spirit work in us and bring us to that place of brokenness. That we would call it what it is. It's sin, it's wrong, it's evil. That we would depart from iniquity. Abstain from sexual immorality. For our good, Father, and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.